Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Diet Time is here. That's right. We're talking about the crate from Creep Show on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal Patrick Hamilton coming to you once again from the basement of Amberson Hall. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film the characters. And we're going to unpack the gory details of the crate from 1982's Creep Show in the hopes that a. a janitor's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes we might make at their expense. And as always, there's only one person I trust that if I inadvertently cause the deaths of two people, she'll clean up the crime scene without me having to ask her. The one, the only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? <laughs> Sounds like your house is falling down around you, Patrick. <laughs> We are rebuilding the gate in front of the house, and I know I've now the like a good last three months. There's been construction in the back of the house, and now there's construction in the front of the house, and it's never been a problem until this particular episode's recording. But that's that's where we find ourselves. So if you hear drilling, um, I'm not like building a birdhouse while podcasting, but we we have to move forward. So my apologies to everyone and to you, Gina, as well. I mean, oh God, <laughs> you know you're making it. You know you're making it worse by by commenting on you know, every time the guy makes a noise. I mean, maybe it's because I live in a city. I just expect noise in the background of everything at all times. Right, yeah. So I am not phased by this I, I, at all. Yeah, I, this is just, uh, I guess, the quiet of suburbia and uh, the fact that he chooses to drill every time I talk, so I won't be able to knock it out afterwards, <laughs> I guess, is what it comes down to. But, you know, there are greater crimes, and we will discuss them. But first, I don't want to scare you, Gina, but we are not alone. That is right. We have a special guest, and you know him as a writer and the foremost expert on horror movie music and soundtracks from both of his editions of his book, scored to death and now he has launched a kickstarter to fund his documentary scored to death the dark art of the scary movie the one the only jay blake fischera how are you doing today blake i'm okay thank you very much i'm so excited to have you here this is a long time in the making uh i love your love of horror movie soundtracks and this is a very interesting one one tied very much to the director uh george a romero um what got you into horror movie soundtracks uh well i was always just kind of into film scores Mm -hmm. i always say that like you know i grew up in a house where we had everything from you know john williams stuff in the record collection and a new Morricone to he was the 80s, so Hall and Oates and Thriller and all that stuff. So it never really seemed like different to me to listen to soundtracks when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And then when I was a teenager, mid 90s, my friends and I rented In the Mouth of Badness oh. by John Carpenter. Sure. And uh, that opening theme just like uh, rocked my, my socks off. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was no looking back after that. Sure. And so um, what is your experience with Creepshow? Like, what was the first time you happened to watch it? I actually kind of, uh, I didn't grow up with Romero movies. I had, mm-hmm. I grew up with loving John Carpenter. And so, I mean, horror was, was around. I was in horror. But for some reason, 
uh, George Romero's movies always just kind of eluded me. I didn't grow up with cable. And then when I visited my dad who had a, uh, my parents were separated or divorced. And when we rented movies, I guess he just wasn't renting George Romero movies. So I didn't really get into Romero until I was in college. I went to film school at SUNY Purchase and my roommate there, who's also my co-host for Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers mm-hmm. podcast, he was into Romero. And so he started kind of introducing me to uh, George Romero's dead films there. And then I saw Martin around that time and I fell in love with that. And right. uh, somewhere around then is when I saw Creep Show. And then uh, I revisited Creep Show probably within the last 10 years or so. And uh, I've, I've grown very fond of both Romero and uh, <clears throat> Creep Show since yeah. then. It's a, I think it's a wonderful example of what he can do. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much the same. Like I did see Night of the Living Dead because any, because of its lack of copyright, every television UHF station could show it as much as they wanted. But Creepshow was my first, I think, actual like post Night of the Living Dead introduction to him because it played on cable because it played on TNT and stuff like that. So it, but I also like did not, (laughs) I grew up in a household where my watching habits were severely under observation. So I couldn't just watch whatever I watched. This one I had to sneak in later in life. Um, Okay. So let's get into specifically uh, our fourth story in this collection, The Crate. It should be noted that most of the sequence was filmed on the campus of Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania. And uh, we first meet Mike the Janitor, who is the change he wants to see, only he loses that change under the stairs. He's flipping a coin and loses it under the stairs. And I think personally, and Gina, back me up here if I'm right or if I'm wrong, but more stories should start with someone saying, fuck a diddle. Well, I mean, that's a Stephen King special for you right there. I mean, one one thing it that is. I, <laughs> one thing I, I always love about Stephen King, even his worst moments, he, he comes up with the most, creative swear words you'll 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 ever find in any in in, in any literature he, he does have a way with swears that's absolutely for sure uh mike is the first person to discover this strange crate that's hidden under the stairs almost like it's a deadly harry potter he immediately knows what to do and that is call up his old friend dexter stanley he's the head of the zoology department at the college but dexter is at a party Uh, with Henry Northrup, his queer-coded friend. There's only one thing keeping them apart, aside from elite collegiate society in the early 80s, and that is one Wilma Northrup, or you can just call her Billy. Everyone does. Everyone does. (laughs) Here's the thing I, I suppose we have to tackle before we get to the real story of the crate, and that is its unique setup, because... There are two ways to look at this friendship. And one is that Henry and Dexter are on the down low and their chess matches are really opportunities for them to hook up or be themselves, be their queer selves. Or um, they're just two professors who have an actual friendship and Dexter understands that Henry is legitimately what Billy claims he is, a child who can't do anything for himself and he feels sorry for him. Either one kind of works. 
But another way I kind of looked at it this time I watched was that, is it possible that the Billy we see may not be her actual true nature? Maybe she's not that much of a drunk bore, but that's how Henry sees her. And therefore, that is how we see her. Is that possible, Gina? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all of his interactions with her, are. she seems so comically over the top. And I mean, and granted, it is supposed to be like a comic book, but yeah, I, right. I just I just can't see how this woman would continuously be invited to events carrying on the way she does. If she, if she actually <laughs> acts like that, just constantly publicly emasculating her husband and and. You yeah. know, staggering around, yelling at people. But no, I think that you are, you're probably correct. And, and it is exaggerated because it's, it's, it's his perception of her. It's like she's Bluto Blutarski and chunky jewelry. It's, it's a real wild look. <laughs> I mean, uh, Blake, what is your interpretation of Henry and Dexter's relationship? Well, this time around, I, I don't know. I got the sense that, uh, yeah, uh, Henry probably has, more than just friendship feelings for Dexter. But I got the feeling that maybe Dexter doesn't have the uh, that requited <laughs> love <laughs> for Henry. I mean, he, I mean, I, I guess he's he does seem to be running around with students, and I guess that could be a beard. But uh, mm-hmm. it did seem Henry seems uh, very into Dexter. And yes. uh, Dexter seems like he's trying to back out of that relationship a little bit. He is, but it, it seems very... Billy driven. Like they almost have a conversation outside where Henry's like, so are we going to play chess? And Dexter's kind of like, well, I think we've had this conversation about like our relationship and like you need to get, you need to deal with your other thing before we, you know, take it to the next level or continue our, like Billy is what is the spanner in the mix here. And she's uh, cock blocking what you're saying. Yes. And (laughs) it's very possible that Dexter is by and therefore he is, you know, taking all comers. He he is sleeping with co-eds on campus and he's sleeping with Henry and who knows else or and the other interpretation might be is that Henry is not necessarily lustful for Dexter himself, but Dexter's lifestyle. Dexter is single. Dexter can flirt with coeds. Dexter can speed off from a faculty party without saying goodbye. He's fancy free. And Henry is linked, chained to the social anchor that is Billy, or at least the version of her that we see here. And he cannot escape it. So Maybe it's a fantasy of wanting to run away, not necessarily to be with Dexter, but to be Dexter. Yeah, like a like a hero wor- like a hero worship kind of thing. Or, you know, just goals. jealousy. Hashtag goals <laughs> is what Dexter is to Henry. I'm not sure. All of them are kind of valid. There's nothing invalid to it. And I, I think you can see it in all sorts of ways. It doesn't really uh, it, all, all of them enrich the story. I don't think any of them take away. But Henry is the kind of person who, who he can't fucking do anything. Like, I, I, we, you can have all sorts of opinions about Billy and her attitude towards life and how she interacts with other human beings. But her diagnosis of Henry, I think, is dead fucking on. 
Henry is a child who can't really operate without her because he's too timid to do fucking anything. He's just praying for one of those Stephen King patented hand of God moments that just releases him from all his responsibilities. And what I would love to know is what happens after this, this particular story. It would be very interesting to find out. But before we go too much farther, I think we would be remiss if we did not discuss the uh, presence and career of the one and only Adrian Barbeau here. Blake, what was your introduction to Adrian Barbeau? Oh, man. Uh, probably Swamp Thing. But then, you know, like I said, as I grew up, I was kind of started, I fell in love with John Carpenter's movies pretty early. So, you know, Escape from New York, Fog, all that stuff. And then, of course, I grew up on reruns. So, yeah, <laughs> Maud was, was also on uh, frequently. Uh, you yeah. know, I, anybody who's interested in John Carpenter should read her autobiography because it get, it sheds like a really interesting light on Carpenter. Like we see a side of John Carpenter through her eyes that mm -hmm. like we just don't ever imagine. Like a very lovey-dovey <laughs> kind of guy. Uh, and uh, so I recommend, you know, all the chapters about him are really interesting in their relationship, which of course it covers, you know, here. I think they were, they were still married at this point. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think they met until someone's watching me. Gina, have you ever seen someone's watching me? I don't think so. That was, no, that was, um, Wes Craven that directed the one with, uh, Linda Blair and the witch. No, it's, John, it's Carpenter actually. <laughs> oh, that, okay. So I am thinking of the right one then, but not, but a different movie. Yeah. Okay. No, no I don't think I've Linda seen Blair, that Linda Blair, that's, uh. That's a, that's a Wes Craven movie, though. Yeah, that, 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 the about. one where Linda Blair is like a witch who uh, wants her, her girlfriend's boyfriend or something. Like that. That's <laughs> another. This one I know I've seen, but I have zero recollection of the details. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. Um, yeah, Someone's Watching Me is a pretty decent thriller. I mean, I don't... Would it qualify as an after dark? I don't think so, because it's not much of an erotic, you know, thriller. That being said... Uh, it, it is Lauren Hutton is hot as hell in that movie. And Adrian Barbeau plays uh, her coworker at the news station she works at. And it's just very casually mentioned and not really central to who she is that Adrian Barbeau's character is a lesbian. It's just, it's a facet of her human being that's mentioned occasionally referenced in terms of her going out on dates with women or having previous girlfriends, but it's not like a coming out story or it comes into play with how she inter none of that. It's just very, it's a matter of fact thing. She happens to be this. And so I think it's kind of taken on a, a little bit of a mythos of it being very progressive in a lot of ways. And also it's the movie that Carpenter made, right before Halloween. Like he walked off the set of someone's watching me and onto the set of Halloween. And so he kind of carries with him the confidence of working with these union crews. And there's a level of craftsmanship to that TV movie that you don't get in most TV movies. It looks cool. It all, you know, it is a Hitchcock pastiche, but it works. The, the finale is really top notch. Um, 
the only downfall of the whole thing is that uh, the male lead, David Burney, is a wet of sack, just a wet of, fuck that, a sack of wet potatoes. <laughs> He's all of those things. He's a sack of wet. That's what he is. He is a non-fucking present. That's uh, uh, one Meredith Baxter Burney's husband, right? They were like, a right. couple yeah yeah i remember him being like yeah. in a lot of tv movies of the 80s and having like absolutely no presence whatsoever yeah he just he, i mean he may have been a good husband to her but but wait he was a shitty guy on screen he, just like nothing is happening there um yeah i think my first introduction to her would probably have been swamp thing on home video um, but I would quickly catch up to the fog and escape from New York and stuff like that. And uh, she has one of those great voices. Uh, and I think she even ended up doing voice work for like Batman, the animated series. I think she played a character on there, but I can't remember which one. But uh, what wonderful information I'm providing to <laughs> Maybe. But, Maybe she yeah. <laughs> She did something somewhere. She played a character. Uh, information delivered. Uh, but... <laughs> What she does here, I think, is give you a bit of her Broadway background, where she was a brassy gal on Broadway, um, and it, she's so she's a special kind of something in this motion picture, Blake. <laughs> That's a, kind of an understatement, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough role to play, which is the person you're supposed to hate, but honestly. I think she's surrounded by dips. I think she's surrounded by, you know, white bread. Like, of course she's going to stand out. These people suck. Like, she's the only person you want to hang out with at this party, to be honest. Yeah, I want to know. I want to know how um, uh, she and um, uh, Harold. Let's see. Uh, mm-hmm. what's, yeah, I wonder how oh, they got Henry. Henry. Henry, I wonder how they got together. It's a blind date. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but what's keep what's keeping them together? I mean, how much money could he possibly be making? Not enough. I mean, one of her complaints at the end of this thing is you don't make enough money. But she does have hot and cold running access to alcohol in the house. So that's going for. I mean, she has a kitchen snifter. Like she has a alcohol rack specifically for her alcohol. In the kitchen, Gina. <laughs> I mean, anybody could get booze. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. But we have booze in this house, but we don't have it in every room of the house. Like, we have a dog. We have a child. You can't just have it out and about. But she, but it's available to her 24-7. So uh, that's the only advantage. Or she likes to dominate Henry. This is what she enjoys, even though what it what irritates her is what she's actually getting off on, which is bossing him around. Yeah, he's just he's like he's just extremely passive when she leaves to go to her, quote unquote, classes. uh, Doesn't she indicate she says, like, what would you do without me? And then she just but she indicates like the same. Right. Like, well, I don't know what I'd do without you. So there there's there appears to be at least in that one line, some kind of connection right between the two of them like she does she's fond of him even though uh he seems to be worthless yeah (laughs) and i guess the other element here that should be noted 
um, before we get too deep into the plot, is that, you know, all of Creepshow has a very EC Comics skewering of class layered into this, certainly a part of Romero's, uh, you know, films and certainly layered into a lot of Stephen King stories. Um, but it's inherent to a lot of EC Comics stories as well. How the rich can, you know, they, they just feel like they can get away with literal murder and the only thing that holds them in check is a supernatural element, which provides us with something these elites cannot buy their way out of, retribution and justice. And so Billy is out of place, but how much in this place would you want to be? It's, it's not quite the laser-focused classism exercise that the first story, Father's Day, or um, the, the last story is. But it's kind of layered in in a, this was the kind of environment that King found himself in when he attended college and later taught as a professor at college. There seems to be, it's poking at something that he's touched at one point in time. I, I didn't think I, you know, I never considered that, but, but that, that makes a lot of sense. I, this is, this is my favorite one, my favorite segment out of the five, because I just mm-hmm. think it's, I just think it's generally the scariest one. Yeah. You know, from, from, yeah, you know, certainly looking at it in terms of when I saw it as a kid, like that, that final mm-hmm. shot of like the eyes opening up in the water of like that. I was like, mm, okay, that's burned into my brain forever. <laughs> It's definitely the most complete. It's the story that takes its sweetest amount of time to tell. Like it, there's a more full story going on. Something to tide you over is very slight. It's evocative, but it's slight. You know, Jordy Verrill is a, a, a blip uh, in this movie in terms of like, it's not a very expansive story. You're pretty much in two locations, one of those locations serves as multiple locations. So, you know, this is a very much more full environment to dig into. And I think it's a lot of fun. Like there's a lot to dig into. These characters are rich and interesting. Um, I do wonder why Billy was edited to say etiquette crotch instead of cunt, but I assume that's an MPAA thing. (laughs) The, this is the only one, though, <clears throat> that was like a previously published story, right? Am I mistaken? Weeds, uh, which is the became the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, was published in a magazine. Oh, I see. Um, but it was never reprinted in any of King's short story collections, um, probably due to its reception within Creepshow. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that kind of stands out as being the easily most easily accessible and previously viewed story that's being recreated within Creepshow. So it get, it cuts right to the chase too. I mean it's yes. it's not and, fooling around. And it, it it knows exactly what it wants to accomplish. And unlike some of the other uh, other stories where like there's one gag it's all leading up to. Here there's several hits. There's layers to your interactions with the crate. And so it's both building suspense and there's multiple payoffs with the crate. There's a lot, a little bit more going on here. And I think the, the movie benefits as a result. As we mentioned earlier, 
Dexter and Henry have a weekly chess game. And if you didn't catch the way I phrased that, yes, I am putting those words in quotes. Um, so regardless of whether Dexter is actually gay or bi, you know, he's been cast as like this island that Henry uses as an escape from the turbulent seas of Billy, who at best is like either too cool for these stuffed shirts or at worst is a mean drunk that you can walk away from at a party. And most people do. <laughs> like <laughs> Most people don't stick around for long conversations with Billy. <laughs> because she looks like she would like dress you down from head to toe, just tell you everything is wrong with you in about 30 seconds. And I think she understands what's wrong with most people within 30 seconds, and they don't have the wherewithal or spying to say the same to her, which is would be pretty easy to do. But, you know, it comes down to the fact that, as we mentioned, like Henry's just unable to do anything. He just he won't speak up. He won't take action. He won't. He's afraid of Billy's wrath in his personal or professional life. He's unwilling to put any work towards building a kind of solution in place. He's ineffectual in capital letters. Do you think he's always been that way or is he just broken at this point? I think it's probably always been a component of his personality. I think she revels in it. I, I think you're right in that there's some component that they vibe off of where he's the hapless, can't do anything right, and she's the truth teller who lays it on the line every single time, but there are zero consequences for his constant getting everything wrong because that's the dynamic they they have. So... Like, it's, this is just going to, you know, continue to happen until a boxed Yeti creature eats one of them. And which one, we won't find out until the end of the story. But our old friend Mike the janitor has called Dexter, and he says, I found a crate that states it's from an 1834 Arctic expedition, and it's just hanging out underneath the stairs. And I think you should check it out. So this gets Dexter's attention, and he leaves the party. And we have a fantasy sequence here, and you can tell it's a fantasy sequence because all of a sudden the creep show lighting comes into play with the reds and the blues. And Henry has a fantasy where he shoots Billy straight in the forehead. And then in his mind, everyone claps for this. Like, thank you for, <laughs> for releasing us from the plague that is Billy. It's like the craziest Tumblr story of, you know, you know, oh, I told <laughs> off a Starbucks barista that I wanted black coffee and everybody applauded me. I was halfway into writing an, an entire bit where I was going to do an Am I the Asshole where I told the story about I was at a party with my wife and she was drunkenly yelling at people. So I shot her in the forehead and everyone clapped. Am I the Asshole? <laughs> well, you, think, you think Romero well I mean I guess Stephen King could still I mean if nowadays you'd like would R Romero get me too'd for telling such a story even if in, in a fantasy I mean I think this is an element of King's storytelling that repeats over and over again and certainly 
early on, there were a lot of husbands who were harangued by wrathful wives and ineffectual men. And then once he hits the late 80s and then early 90s, he flops into women who are caught in abusive relationships. And he comes at it from that perspective. He repeats a lot of these tropes. He, He finds and mines these relationships over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm very certain as to like how, why he views the shining, the original movie as poorly as he does, because that, that story is essentially not his fantasy, but his worst nightmare of what he could be. And he indulges in that nightmare to an end and then he gives that character an out where he sacrifices himself for his family. Whereas in the movie, that character does not sacrifice anything. He dies because he's overconfident and continues to follow footsteps until it leads to his icy cold death. Is that the only reason Stephen King hates it? No, no. And he has plenty of reason too. That's fine. Everyone can have a different interpretation of a movie, but I do feel like that is one of his most personal stories and he just doesn't like people playing around with that particular story. A lot of thought in this, in this particular segment, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was extemporaneous. I mean, (laughs) you've given me a lot to think about with this, uh, because, like I said, I mean, They're I not I, all dick jokes, Gina. I just because I mostly, like I said, this is my favorite one, but mostly because you know when I was a kid, I saw I thought it was genuinely scary, and and yeah. and you know I think it's still pretty nicely gory. I mean, the the special effects ain't so great from a modern perspective, but mm. but I mean it's still like a big dude, like you know you know you know big furry glove scratching at someone's face, but. <laughs> You know, I, I, but, I, the, but the scratches look fucking awesome. I, I never really gave a whole lot of thought to the dynamics of the human characters, but you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying, oh, you're making all this up off the top of your head. I'm just saying I never thought of it from that angle. So it's interesting. It's just one of those things that kind of flows through this is, you know, King is like often examining people in very dire emotional circumstances, what makes them vulnerable human beings. And Henry is absolutely vulnerable. But I think my interpretation most oftentimes when I've watched this is this is some sort of Kingian hand of God relieving Henry of this terrible burden. When in point of fact, like it's a kind of a tragedy that the only time Henry can stand up for himself is in the murder of his wife. Like it's it's an it's like an incel instruction manual <laughs> in a weird way. And Um, I had trouble, you know, squaring that particular philosophical circle. It's, it's still, and I agree with you, the best segment in the entire movie, a movie I love. And I also think from a modern perspective, it's easier to see the, the, the facets of what might be trying to be, what might be said here. Whereas I think when this came out, you were just supposed to be like, yeah, eat her up monster. Through adult eyes, it, it casts a different uh, pallor. Um, but, it, like you mentioned this earlier, what kind of classes is Billy taking? <laughs> Sleeping with a younger man yeah, classes? <laughs> Anatomy. Yes, exactly. There you Riding go. Anatomy. That dick down at the local bar. <laughs> 
101, 201. Because it's not, I think some part of me was like, oh, like she's taking a yoga class. But no one dresses in chunky jewelry to go take. Oh, come on. She's totally she's totally cuckolding him. Come on. You don't think they have that element of their you don't think they have that element in their relationship, please. I wholeheartedly agree, Gina. But we also get a second uh, fantasy sequence here, um, which Henry tries to strangle Billy, which I find amusing because i think if henry had actually attempted such a thing she would have murderized him in six seconds flat well yeah that's why he would never actually try it in real life do you think there's anything uh anything nefarious that went on between uh the of the involving the death of dexter's wife oh you mean that might be the bond that they share as they've already (laughs) covered up one murder and uh it it has you know, it has pushed Henry to, inspired Henry to do the same. And that's mm. what they're talking about the at the end, where he's like, well, I didn't do anything. And he's like, well, I didn't do anything either. I, I, I enjoy this theory. I enjoy this theory crafting session. <laughs> um, it's certainly uh, something that, that I will ponder upon. But let us return back to Mike and Dexter as they are in the basement of Amberson Hall, and they're going to try and pry open this box. And it doesn't take too long. For Mike, once they get the nails up and they hammer open the locks, and Mike sees two glowing orbs inside the box. He goes, oh, beautiful jewels. And, of course, (laughs) uh, that's when he gets his hand bitten off by a giant Yeti creature who has been living, I don't know, hibernating inside this box. Let's talk about Mike's death first, and then we'll get to the Yeti, because they're they're two separate conversations. But, Mike, have you ever seen eyes that have confused you for fucking jewels, Gina? I was going to say, I, I, I don't know if maybe this is some sort of, like, you know, mind control trick that the, that the, the <laughs> sure. Yeti creature is playing. But, yeah, I, I nothing nothing about these creatures' eyes in any way look like sparkling jewels that I need to stick my hand in this yeah. box I just opened that I've never seen before. <laughs> I just, yeah, we could open up it more, but let me just stick my hand straight up into it. And, yeah, he gets his hand bitten off. Then he gets a little bit more of his arm bitten off. And then the creature just pulls the rest of his body oh, up it's so into horrible. the crate. <laughs> So it's so dragged out and horrible. <laughs> and you got like just you know, like like Dexter barely helps him. <laughs> he just he oh, just, yeah. no, he just he, 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 he's just sort of sitting there making these like, you know, I have indigestion faces. <laughs> he just he doesn't know how to help, but he also doesn't really attempt to help. It's it's a real strange mix of I don't want to touch you because I don't want to die. But also, I don't want to die, so I'll stand over here. He is not a hero in this in this particular feature. Now we're going to get to the Yeti creature, whatever is in that box. He kind of looks like a Yeti. He's from the Arctic. Let's say he's a Yeti. Was he in hibernation inside the box? What are the biological functions of this creature existing inside of a box without any food? Without any water, without any source of energy, and he just went sleepy sleeps no. until they unlock the box. No legs, maybe, arguably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah, but all but listen. Even if you don't have legs, 
you, you still need to have a snack every once in a while. This 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 creature has been boxed up since 1834, and just one janitor is all it took to wake up this guy. Uh, again, this is uh, this is a movie. <laughs> this, we don't have to have an answer here. It doesn't ruin anything. I just find it fascinating. Well, I think the hibernation theory is a good one. It makes as good a sense as any. So Dexter begins um, stage one of his personal banana town. Um, and he runs into Charlie. Charlie is a grad student, who, grad student rather, who's very dedicated to his work and his in-pocket pencil holder and velour shirts, apparently. Uh, but when Dexter tells him, oh my God, Mike the janitor was eaten by a monster in a box, he's kind of like... <laughs> Come on, give me a fucking break. <laughs> I mean, who's the walk out sweating? Who would react in such Gina, a way? If you were at work and someone said, we, you have to help me. There's a monster in a box in the other room. Would you go, okay, you stay here. I'm going to go check out that monster in a box. Or would you call the campus fucking police? I, I would assume that at best, like, you know, I, I was going to go in there and people would present me with a birthday cake, even though it was not my birthday. <laughs> it's just a furry Yeti on top of a sheet cake from the local supermarket, that sort of deal. Exactly. Just, you know, tearing out a big old chunk, you know, eating it. <laughs> then tearing a big old chunk out of me and eating that too. It's just a sheet cake with giant claw marks. Running exactly. Exactly. But here's the, but I like, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Like he's like the campus police won't be any help. Yeah. But you know what they'll be instead of you lunch. <laughs> I throw the fucking campus police in the way. What, what allegiance do you have to them? Also, they, they, they may be armed and we don't know. He, do, he There's no reason to believe that, that, you know, shooting it will not kill, will not do anything. At least it might dissuade it from eating you, you know, like you at least establish like, Hey, this is a real problem. Call in people with bigger guns or whatever the fuck a flamethrower even, but <laughs> going you know what let's keep the campus police out of this and i the grad student will start measuring fucking bite marks like i'm hooper in jaws no 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 <laughs> call the authorities you dipshit the scientist in him has taken over at, by, by the time <laughs> he sees right. the shoe <laughs> charlie much to you know he sees all the blood there but in between this sequence of trying to plead, uh, Dexter trying to plead with Charlie to, to, you know, call the campus police because he can't. I don't know why. But the creature has, has pushed his box back in, underneath the stairs. And Charlie's like, I don't know. I'm going to grab this shoe. I'm going to grab this flashlight. And I'm, I'm going to figure it out. And he looks inside the box and it's empty. And he's like, ah, <laughs> but it turns out that Yeti was playing possum baby. Cause he was in another corner of the, <laughs> of the, of, of the stairs. <laughs> and he, he takes a giant fucking bite out of that dude's neck. And it's gnarly as shit. Yeah. Okay. How many teeth does that Yeti have Gina? He, he's got like about 80 teeth. <laughs> He's got like 80 teeth and about like tw and like 20 claws just on one hand. Because <laughs> when he rakes them, like it's a, it's at least four rakes across his face. Ugh. It's gnarly as shit. Ugh. I'm thinking it about it right now. <laughs> so, yeah, um, he, you know, takes a bite out of, of Charlie's neck. He claws his face and then 
feeds on him in the dark. And then Dexter's like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. There's only one place I can go. I can fall into the arms of my old <laughs> friend Henry and tell the tale. All while still holding a bloody boot of Mike's, which is some level of evidence. Like if someone comes to you and goes, a monster ate two people I was hanging out with. You're kind of like, I don't know. That sounds a little bit far-fetched. But they're holding one of the <laughs> dude's blood-covered, bite-covered boots. And that might lend credence to the fucking story. <laughs> I didn't do this here. Would would someone who killed someone <laughs> be carrying around their bloody shoe? Did I take a bite out of this shoe? Doubtful. Have you seen me eat other shoes at parties? Yes, but that was a dare. So we've talked about this before, but as much as I admire Romero uh, for many things. Some of what he tries to do here with Dexter and Creepshow uh, is push various characters past the point of sanity where, you know, here it's played very broad and it doesn't, it kind of flies and kind of does it mostly because of the tone of Creepshow is more comedic. So I think, I can't say that Fritz Weaver's portrayal here exactly nails it, but it brings me back to an issue that we've talked about before. And I'll, I just want to say it again because it's that time of year. Poltergeist just came out on 4K. But it demonstrates the singular ability of Toby Hooper, who consistently was able to show people like lose their grip on sanity in real time. He shows it over and over and over again. People see shit that makes their mind snap. Yeah, gone, baby. Yeah, I just want. I actually, it's funny you should mention. I just rewatched the Funhouse tonight before we recorded, mm-hmm. uh, because it's part of Criterion's eighty heart eighties horror collection, and the um, the lead girl, uh, at the Elizabeth Barrage, uh, she kind of mm-hmm. g- goes through it, and and. It yeah. comes comes out of the funhouse. They're just kind of staggering around like she's just been in an explosion. And all. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, it really sells that third act when she's caught in the gearhouse. And listen, we're going to cover the funhouse eventually. I think it's on the calendar for 2023. But it's one example of how Hooper is able to show people who just they're they were on this earth and then their mind left. And he's able to get people there and show how it happens. Like, that's how you know Poltergeist is a Toby Hooper movie because those characters lose their goddamn minds. And you can tell. Like, you you feel the after effects. You feel it when it happens. And listen, Spielberg, I'm not going to, you know, handicap the man. He can do a whole lot of things. But that's one of those things he doesn't quite pull off when he tries it sometimes hooper that's uh that's a target he can hit over and over and over again whereas fritz weaver is kind of like <laughs> he's a simpson side character at a certain point here you're kind of like pull it together buddy like you got to choose a fucking lane i think it works i don't i don't it's well, like well, again, it's it's, it's like com it's comic booky like you don't you, you don't you right, don't want to have yeah. you, you don't want this to be too serious. He's no Barbara from Night of Living Dead, who just <laughs> <laughs> yes, completely catatonic. That is true. Uh, yes. <laughs> Barbara goes through a lot of things, and then she eventually, at a certain point, just goes, I've had enough, and walks into <laughs> arms and, 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 and tearing flesh. Um, but you know what? She had a good run and didn't we all. 
I just want to note, um, you know, I can't say like I'm a, a, a Fritz Weaver super fan or anything. It just should be noted that he was in Day of the Dolphin, the movie with the best tagline ever written, which is unwittingly he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> He's not even the he. That's George C. He's Scott. Like, he, no, it's George C. Scott. He's just, he's friends with George C. Scott. <laughs> Aren't we all, though? Aren't we all? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Deep down. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. So let's get it back to Creep Show here. And so Henry hears this tale, and the wheels start to turn for him. So he does what any friend would do in the circumstance drug your friend, <laughs> just knock him out, write your wife a note head back to the college to see the scene for yourself. Like he hears this and goes, maybe I can get my wife to die this way. He's, he's betting a lot. Like, I guess the worst thing that happens if Dexter isn't telling the truth is that Billy makes fun of him, but that shit was going to happen anyways. So Henry goes back to the school and of course he flying, finds the bloody remains and does what we would all do. Clean up. And in the first example of him doing anything without being prompted by somebody else, he does this on his own. And of course, uh, this cuts back and forth to Billy arriving back home, drunk from classes. And <laughs> she reads this. The sequence of events here is fucking wild. She's like, Henry, Henry. And Henry's nowhere to be found. And so she finds this note, heads to the kitchen and pours herself a glass of milk. And I'm like, you're drunk and you're drinking. <laughs> yeah. Milk? You imagine that. I'm just, I'm does. just like, I'm just like taking a sip and just immediately barfing into the sink right next to me. If I knew if I do that. I, I just like, I, maybe I haven't done enough drinking, but I can't imagine at any point having gotten drunk throughout the day and into the evening and going, my night camper will be some milk, but wait, <laughs> she's got a special secret. And that is she has she has a snifter of hooch that she adds to the the glass of milk. It's like the but it's uh, not even a white the, Russian. The, it, 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 it's it's just like bourbon and milk. It's like the uh, Pittsburgh Laverne. Instead of going to beat that so no. let's move on yep. I, I just time to wrap it yeah. up uh, <laughs> wrap it up listen you know when you, you know when you've reached the mountaintop because everything's downhill we have been bested so uh henry's back at the school and and i have to say linoleum is the best surface to clean up blood from like how many other killers gina have we talked about where they're so great at quick cleanups of murder scenes and yet it takes Henry forever to get this done on the best surface ever to do it. He's just like, yeah, he's just kind of like really just taking a very chill pace to cleaning up this like, I mean, you can't even call it a, a crime scene because technically a crime has not taken place. Um, right. <laughs> but he's just like, you know, swish, 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 swish. <laughs> like he could not be more chill about cleaning up this mess. 
That does bring to mind what a great Law and Order episode this would be. If uh, they were sent out to go capture this monster in a box, and in between all these things, there's the pong pong, and just, you know, <laughs> what what street corner they're on. <laughs> they're talking to Mike's janitorial supervisor. He's like, hey, Mike, the janitor? Yeah, I've seen him around loading a truck. Um, but Billy uh, arrives on campus, and she's brought her open glass of spiked milk, Gina. She's been driving with it like a fucking boss. <laughs> in like a pre in like a pre cup holder in a car yeah, era right. as well. There might not even be seat belts in that station wagon. <laughs> we don't how is this like she's just gripping it the entire time? On the dash. Kids don't try that at home. On the dash. Right next to a bobblehead hula. Like just like staggering in with like just like, you know, spills down the front of her shirt, just like, you know, what what happened to you? <laughs> Why do you, why do you smell? Why, why do you why smell, do you smell like, like why do you, a dairy section was, in bourbon? I was gonna say, why do you smell like sour milk? <laughs> I'm a dry guy. Why do you? Want? <laughs> so, uh, just in the nick of time, Henry finishes cleaning up, and he. I'll be honest with you. Once he brings Billy down to the murder basement, where people learn, uh, he does a terrible job of not. Of like holding back his murder plan. Like he's like, Oh, Dexter um, assaulted this girl and she's underneath the stairs and only you can talk her out of there. You know? And, and she's like, what did, what does she look like? He's like, oh. <laughs> stop. I, it's only because he's been such a numb nuts that she doesn't go, are you trying to murder me? Well, also, she's sort of like, oh, yeah, this has happened before. She's just like, like, she's not horrified by this. Like, like, she's just like, no. oh, yep, yeah, that's Dexter. You're raping another co-ed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but finally, I'm in on the action. Yeah, it's like, oh, now, now I'll have some tea to spill after this. You know what I mean? And, you yeah, know, I but, can't wait to bring this up at a... Yeah, next to the next faculty dinner. You know what I mean? But, but. She just next, like her next class. Yeah, exactly. Her class. Um, but but yeah, she's just like, oh wow, is that right? Where both people would be like, oh my god, we should call the police or something. Right. At no point does she ever say, let's get the authorities involved. She's like, oh, well, thank you for inviting me to <laughs> us covering up a crime. I've been training my entire life to do this, been drinking all day. I'm in perfect shape to do this. He lures her to the you know, little Harry Potter bedroom where this crate monster lives. And of course the crate monster does not erupt immediately when he smells, you know, bourbon and milk. And so he He's like, starts shaking what is her that? like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've been in this crate for over a hundred years. And that is the worst thing I've smelled in a long time. Uh, and so Henry starts shaking her up against the crate, asking it to wake up, wake up, wake up, which it does not do. And this gives Billy the opportunity she's, you know, been waiting for for a while. She just fires every bullet she's kept chambered uh, for Henry. You know, he's lazy. He's ineffectual. He's a terrible lover. He's bad at washing dishes. He doesn't earn enough money. He has three-cornered hat-shaped hair. He doesn't mix alcohol with milk like a real man. 
<laughs> but this rant is actually what wakes up the creature, and he quickly eats her alive. And Henry does not immediately celebrate. He um he almost pukes out a window like a real stone cold killer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's real gross to watch. And I remember this is this yeah, this sure. is the first time this is the first time Henry has seen you know this monster at work. <laughs> Everyone else has gotten a yeah. Dexter saw it twice. This is the, his first time watching the Yeti take chunks out of a person he knows and unalive them right in front of him. Um, so he kind of recovers, and I, I guess he assumes, for whatever reason, like. This he, the, the Yeti has nested inside this box, so he's stayed inside there. And why wouldn't you? You people keep bringing this guy meals, uh, so he just takes a couple locks, adds them to the chains that are already there, locks it up, and then manages to drag this motherfucker up a flight of stairs out to the station wagon that his wife drove there, and then take it to a quarry and dump it off a cliff. This is the most this guy has done for himself in a really long time. This this is the sort of thing that I think if we sold it to a lot of, of, of young men, maybe you can become a man by murdering somebody, by offering it to a boxed Yeti and then take it to a cliff and drop it off. You know, like, who knows what kind of guy Henry becomes after this. Yeah, I'm going to say it makes about as much sense to as, you know, Tucker Carlson suggesting that men, you know, lay out in the sun and tan their testicles to raise their testosterone yeah. level. I mean, you know. Yes. Our, our, our nuts need more sun. Get them on out there. Get them on out there, boys. Come on. And when I think of the pinnacle of males, I think Tucker Carlson. Absolutely. Uh, what a what a focal point for all of us to uh, lean towards. So um, Henry then tells Dexter what he's done. And in exchange for his silence, Henry makes Dexter commit to playing chess with him twice a week. (laughs) Uh, Either he's getting laid twice a week or they're just playing chess. And now they can do it twice a week because they don't have Billy lording it over them. I don't know. But uh, Dexter Dexter asks, what if it gets out? And and Henry goes, oh, no, it was in a box. It probably drowned. And you know that with Henry's track record, he's fucking wrong as shit because we cut immediately back to that box breaking apart. And the monster's like, hello, everybody. I'm back. Oh, oh, that's scared. That, that, that shot scared little Gina so bad. <laughs> I can see that. I can totally see it. It's a, it's a hell of a sequence. It really, really is. Uh, Blake, any final thoughts on the crate? I feel like this, um, if you had missed... The, uh, the first episode of Alf, this would have been a good prequel. <laughs> He's a little puppet. Dark, dark, we'll call him Dark Alf. <laughs> the darkest Alf. Um, yes, and it's not just cats that should be afraid of him. Absolutely. Um, uh, Gina, any final thoughts on Dark Alf? I, I love it. I love it. It's the best. It's the best sequence out of the five for me. It also has the best music. Yes. I meant to ask you about this at the top because the, the music here is not really being done by somebody who did a ton of music outside of Romero. Um, and at times, like, there's big sweeping 
uh, orchestration going on here. And then sometimes it's a little bit of Casio noodling. Like, what is your take on the the music of Creep? Well, I mean, if anybody is interested in 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 reading a lot about it, I interviewed John Harrison for my second book, ah. and we talk a lot about uh, this score as well as Day of the Dead. But uh, in a nutshell, Romero was planning on doing what he had done with his most of his previous movies, which was score it with a sound library, a music yeah. library. Okay. But when they started listening to the tracks from the library and, and seeing what they were shooting, and obviously Romero was working with, you know, a higher caliber of actor in terms of popular, at the very least popularity than he had worked with before. Right. They decided that the fidelity of the studio tracks wasn't strong enough. Like they just didn't sound good. The sound quality was bad. So John Harrison, who was working as his assistant director on this film said, well, maybe I can fool around with them in the, with my keyboards and stuff and make them sound better. But then that kind of led to John just starting to write cues and combining to, to kind of go in between those uh, library tracks. So ultimately Creepshow ends up being kind of a hybrid score of library tracks and uh, John Harrison's mostly keyboard music, although he did write the theme song as well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, his theme for the, for the crate is by far my favorite on uh, yeah. on the uh, of the film. Um, the one thing I will say that I found interesting was that uh, with uh, something to tide you over there's there's like a a dark version of like camp town races or something that's played <laughs> i think all versions of camp town races are slightly dark and i think i, mean, I think that's what it is and i asked him why that like why do that and he said it was because leslie nielsen would whistle it on the set all the time <laughs> That sounds like a very Leslie Nielsen thing to do. Um, yeah. Okay. So. I'm down for that. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, you have that, that story and so much more in your books, and uh, I can't wait for that documentary, but uh, we'll get to that before or after, rather. We play Choose Your Own Death Venture, and that is where we decide of the deaths presented in this segment if you were forced to die in one of those ways well which one would you choose and why up for bid we have get shot straight in the head at a party or get strangled by a tie eaten by crate creature hand first eaten by crate creature neck first or eaten by crate creature face first and blake as our guest i choose you to go first i would go for shot in the head but okay. not for because of what you're probably thinking <laughs> <laughs> because it's the sexiest death of all of these one you know like sure it's probably the quickest and sure. the least painful but it's mm -hmm. also that if that wasn't a fantasy like you've probably your death has probably like severely scarred everybody at that party <laughs> and right. you will never Everyone's be forgotten talk about it you'll never yeah. be forgotten yeah <laughs> You become campus legend uh, from that moment on as the victim of, of Professor Henry when he shot you in the head. And you had all that beautiful, chunky jewelry on, too, which 
uh, it, it looks great on Adrian Barbeau. I mean, a napkin would look great on Adrian Barbeau, but that's neither here nor there. Gina, what say you? Oh, definitely, definitely shot in the head. I, I don't, I don't want any of those chomping deaths. They, they are very prolonged and look terrible. You know, I was going to force everyone to, to to choose a chomping, but I, the one I'm going with is face because it looks like Billy has gone pretty fast. She doesn't, she doesn't, her brain be bye-bye at that point. Whereas like that hand first. Yeah, she's probably, you know, so pickled at this point that she doesn't even realize what's happening anyway. <laughs> she's wasting on milk and bourbon or milk and rye. God knows what that combination is. If it's rum, she's a criminal and she should go to jail. Even if she's dead, that is wrong. You should go to jail inside of that Yeti's stomach. That's not okay. Don't do it. Uh, but that just about does it. Uh, Josh Hollis does all of our artwork and Revenge Body does all of our music. Go to revengebodymemphis at bandcamp.com to get this theme and all our other remixes. Speaking of music, Blake, tell us all about where people can see and hear more from you. Oh, well, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at scored to death. Uh, you can pick up the books at Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoretodeath.com. And right now I'm in the process of trying to raise funds to make a Score to Death documentary, which is excellent. what to say based on the books, but it's more like uh, a, a, a different way for me to explore the topic of horror film music. And if you happen to be listening to this uh, before November 1st, 2022, you can uh, contribute or find out more information about that at Kickstarter. There's a lot of cool tiers, including a limited edition exclusive album that I'm also producing in conjunction of this, which is horror movie themes covered by an assortment of really awesome uh, composers and artists. Everyone from Alan Howarth, who worked with John Carpenter, to uh, the band Voyager, Animal Morte, Steve Moore from the band Zombie, Wojciech Kolchewski, uh, Holly Amber Church, Richard Christie, the Blair Brothers. So um, they all donated their time and their recording tracks specifically for this um, to help raise money for the film. So it's uh, in that sense, the kind of the generosity and the support I'm getting from people is great. But uh, if we don't raise the money, then... I guess we're not releasing an album or a movie, so <laughs> so it all goes to waste. All those poor musicians wasted their time. Well, I hope that me. doesn't happen. I think anyone who's who sampled your work uh, in your books and uh, read your stuff, I, I think, knows your passion on this subject. And I think it's one of those subjects that hasn't received as much exposure as others. So I think it's definitely worth everyone's while. So they should check it out right now, Gina. Uh, where can people find you on these here internet? I write about television and movies at thespool.net. Uh, I also have a uh, a newsletter uh, in which I write about, also write about movies and television, but kind of more at length and more about uh, older, under uh, underlooked uh, films. That's Gina Watches Things at, uh, at Substack. Uh, and I am on Twitter under Gina Does Things. Do it today. People, check it out. Uh, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, and, you know, 
come over to our Patreon where we're doing fun stuff that you should see and hear about. Uh, at the end of the month, I think we've got a fun commentary track for you to listen to that you're very much going to enjoy. Lots of fun exclusives over there for you to check out. Please rate and review us on the podcatcher of your choice. We very much enjoy it. And of course, next week, we will be wrapping up our coverage of Creep Show with the creepiest of all the stories. We've got a fun returning champion coming here to help us talk about it and close things up for Halloweenies. But until then, don't worry, folks. The body count will continue for myself, Regina, and Blake. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.